I am Allison Dorr. I am a radio talk show host, as well as a curator of a comedy show, also on the radio. Well, I want to start again. Um, ooh, saying what I do is weird. Okay. Mm. Can you edit that out? Well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, all right. I'm Allison Dorr. I host a daily talk show on the radio, a show on the comedy channel on SiriusXM as well, and I am launching a female-centric comedy record label called Howl and Roar. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Why, why Howl and Roar? They are both words that are used to describe laughter. Okay, yeah, yeah. But then they're also words that describe a way of speaking. You know, you howl when you are frustrated, um, and sometimes you roar to be heard. And so I think there's an element of frustration that a lot of comedians have, and they want to be heard. And so I felt like there was this lovely dual meaning happening. Nice. So we're recording first few days. Was it fourth? The fourth, fourth of September. The kids have gone back to school officially. Yeah. Um, how was your summer? It was great. It was too short. <laughs> I don't like it when it's cold out. And September makes me really sad just because it just means it's going to go away soon. It's been hot, though, these past few yeah, days. Yeah, I don't care. But you like it, though. I mean, look, when, you're, when you've are when you been outside for like an hour and you're sweaty and <laughs> in those moments you go, this is not ideal, but I always remind myself, like, better this than February. Absolutely. I would always rather be hot than cold. Always. Now, you're, you're originally from Ottawa. Yes, the so, nation's capital. So what's what's worse, a Toronto winter or a Ottawa? Oh, Ottawa. Yeah. Way worse. I don't know what it is about the lake, but we get less snow here. Oh, okay. In Toronto, and I, it might be as cold sometimes, but we get way less snow. Here in Toronto yes. versus Ottawa. Yeah. What were winters like in Ottawa? Gross. <laughs> it was Ottawa and it was winter. Yeah. Um, you know what? My parents' backyard, because my parents still live in the same house, and the backyard still consistently like fills up with snow. And there's a part that my dad shovels, mm -hmm. but then the rest of the backyard, like the snow will eventually go to the top of the fence. Yeah. Whereas here, I feel like there's a constant like snow, but then there's a melting period. Yeah, that's right. And then there, and so it never piles that high. And that's what I feel. Ottawa just gets buried. Mm. And the snow just stays there and it just gets, stays cold. Yeah. And then it takes forever for it to melt and go away mm -hmm. because by the time spring comes, now you have eight feet of snow that has to melt <laughs> instead of here where it's an acceptable amount. True. Although really the most acceptable amount is zero. <laughs> that would be ideal, right? Yes. <laughs> no snow. Why do we live here? <laughs> I don't know. I like. I think going south of the 49th can be an issue. Sure. For I some know. people Listen, these days. When I think about back in the day when yeah. people were, you know, immigrating and what have you, I don't know why they stopped here. But because keep going, it gets warmer. Keep, it's, it's Just warm. keep going. Well, there's tons of people that have come like from Vancouver and, and, and come back here. 
but the difference is so, so with Vancouver, it rains all the time, and I couldn't live with that either. Hmm. Um, but if they, if people had kept walking south, like when pioneers were here, yeah. just keep going. What are you doing, dummies? But um, like now, yeah. I mean, part of me goes. My brother lives in California, and I'm like, great. Basically, yeah. same weather year round. Sure. But also then. Yeah, yeah, a lot of weird stuff going all on. The weird stuff in this town. down there. Although I, I've heard California wants to be its own country. Yeah, that's not gonna happen. Or something? Though. No, I don't know. Yeah, Quebec wants to be its own country. How'd that go? It was so close. Yeah, it but was it, close. <laughs> it was close, but it didn't happen. I and remember I feel being like in th- university and, and having painting this huge mural <laughs> with a bunch of other kids. You know, our Canada includes Quebec. Sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And uh, but they didn't. It didn't happen. No. And it's going to be the same thing with California's never going to secede. You know, how annoyingly hard it would be to start your own country. True. Your own currency, your own army. Y- come on, your own currency alone. Your own language. You would give up. Think they- well, I, th- I think they would probably just speak English. <laughs> Stay with English. Yeah. Um. So originally from Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Um. When when did you? How old were you when you came to Toronto? Uh, I was around twenty. Five twenty-six. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So you went to school in Ottawa as well. I went to well after high school. Yeah. I worked for I can never remember if it was a year or two years. Mm-hmm. I worked for a period of time. Yeah. And then I went to Concordia University in Montreal. Yeah. What did you um, study? Theater performance. Okay. And then I dropped out in the middle of my second year because mm-hmm. it was dumb. And uh, what was what was dumb about it? You know what? It was. Here's the thing. I, I I'm kind of at a point now where I don't agree with hmm. sending uh, kids to university for the arts. Because okay. in right. a lot of cases, I don't think it makes sense. I think there is better, less expensive ways to do it. Sure. And to get that training. Mm -hmm. And so all the teachers at Concordia at that time had all trained at the same mime school in France. And they were all like, I was already at that point in the acting union and had gotten some work as an actor. Okay. And nothing practical really was taught in those first couple of years, except for there was, there was a couple of exceptions Mm -hmm. every year, but overall some of the stuff we were doing was honestly so ridiculous and a waste of our we spent a whole week in this one acting class in my first year you know those little balls uh primary school balls they're like foam on the inside and they're red white and blue yeah okay so what did you give to like your dog to chase around and grab yeah so we'd have those and we'd stand in a circle and throw them back and forth to each other and the teacher would be like, now watch the arc of the arm as it moves. And I was like, this is honestly gym <laughs> class for kindergartners. That's what we're doing right now. And we're paying thousands, thousands of dollars for this. And, um, and so all the teachers there, too, were really annoyed mm-hmm. that some of us, because me and another girl, yeah, had already been on shows and, and had already kind of started a career and the the, the teacher seemed really irritated by that and um there was never anything practical covered like auditioning like Mm. headshots like how to get an agent and so my friends that stayed in it 
after they graduated all called me and they were like, well, how do you get an agent? What do I do now? And I was like, why the F did you go to the school? Yeah. Like it's, so it just really felt like a waste of time. And also, ugh, theater kids, boo. I'm going to keep it so real right now. What's wrong with theater kids? Uh, You were a theater kid or you wanted to be one. I know, but you know what? I think I was always very, I know so many people hate me right now. Um, (laughs) I was always very like, it's not mystical. You pretend to be someone else. Mm. And, but there's a point of exploration too when you're in university where all the theater kids were very like, it's my art. And it's that it speaks to me and then I feel it through my body and I put it out there. And then every theater party turned into an orgy, too, because they're like, we have to explore our bodies and be free (laughs) to. And I remember this one party, like everyone was just like in a massive pile in one of the bedrooms. And I was playing Nintendo on the couch in the living room. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, uh, there's no way I'm going in that room. Uh, You guys do whatever you want. And so there's just this real like everything has to be very meaningful and deep. Mm. And I was also actually severely depressed at this point, too. So I was Mm. like, I don't even care. I don't even care about any of this. Uh, I Mm. want to be anyone but me. And you losers are not making it helpful. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But I also weirdly like in so many ways, I loved it. And I'm still friends with a lot of those people. Um, It's just I think there was a lot of things going on for me. I was annoyed that it wasn't what I thought it would be and that I wasn't really getting, no one was inspiring me. No one was making me feel like I was learning anything as an actor. No one was making me, um, with the exception of the one guy who taught script analysis. And that class, he was like a grumpy old man, but he was the best. Mm. And he was you teaching you. You actually learned something. Yeah. Applicable. Yeah. And, and so that was one class a week for like an hour. But we had to go to, we were in class from eight until four every day. What is script analysis? What does that mean? It, you kind of break down the script. You kind of, you learn to find the nuances in it, the, the sort of what's, what's happening between the lines. The emotion of the lines, things like that? or Not so much the emotion of the... I mean, a little bit, yes. But but basically how to understand... It's almost like in English class in high school when you would read a book and kind of get into the what it means and Mm -hmm. the allegories and the symbolism and stuff. It's kind of about digging deeper into not just what's on the page, Mm. but what are they actually trying to say? Is it a metaphor for something else in life? And then how do you ah, breathe life into that? Interesting. So I'm, I'm curious about that. It's when you when you learned that and, and since then, do you do you watch movies in theater differently? Like, do you watch it? Go, oh, that's what this is about. No, oh. to be honest <laughs> with you. I, I mean, I think... Um, Every, I mean, every now and again, but you really have to to really get to know a script and, and yeah. dig in with it. I mean, you have to read it over and over and over again. And you have to do the work to pull these things out and really think about it, right? Yeah. So if I've never read that script or I don't know that story, I'm going to watch it like everybody else. Yeah. But there's one play that I did twice in my career playing different parts each time. And which is the importance of being earnest. And so that's a play that I've read hundreds of times. And I have my own ideas about like certain aspects of it and certain things I think that Oscar Wilde was trying to say. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I might be wrong, but it also kind of doesn't matter. It's that that informed how I kind of lived in that part. 
yeah. right w- during those times on stage. Interesting. Um, you, you talked about you had uh, a year or two off in between high school mm-hmm. and going to Concordia. Um, so we have, I have, or we have, an almost 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. And yesterday I had a discussion with my wife. I said, do we, do we want him to take a gap year? Right. And she was, he's just starting junior high school. Yeah. <laughs> I go, yeah, but I'm just curious. Where, where do you stand on it? She goes, yeah, for sure. I go, perfect. Awesome. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. He's taking a gap year. Um, what, what, did you, what did you do? In, in your in, in your quote unquote gap year. I was a manager at Blockbuster Video. What? Yeah. I made sweet bank. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't that free sweet. movies. Um uh, yeah, it was a lot of free movies. And I kind of you know what? I was always um I've always had anxiety and, and depression issues. They were undiagnosed until I was twenty, but I was a very growing up was very hard for me. And every time I would come to kind of like a new stage in mm. life, I didn't want to. I didn't want to move on. I still wanted to be a little kid and be safe at home. And um, so in my last year of high school, when people were applying to universities and stuff, I just kind of ignored the whole situation. Mm. And um, I also, into high school, um didn't do sleepovers because I had this separation anxiety. There was this part of me that thought if I slept somewhere else, like my whole family would die while I was gone. Whoa. And it would be, or something very bad would happen and it would be because I wasn't there. And so the idea of going away to university was too much. Mm. And then, but I, I knew I wanted to be an actor. Like when I was in high school, I was positive. Yeah. By the time I was 30, I was going to be an A-list actor in Hollywood. And I didn't, know exactly how it was going to work out um especially because i couldn't leave home but then the idea of like ottawa u had a theater program it was ottawa u it was a garbage program <laughs> at one point you didn't even have to audition for it like it was you know you it were just, just in. You in yeah so it was one of those things where i didn't want to go to that school and i didn't feel ready i didn't feel ready to leave high school i didn't i wasn't ready to move on and that's the biggest growing up leap is leaving high school I think mm-hmm. um, so I don't remember ever really like discussing it with my parents it was just more I think they knew I I wasn't ready to go anywhere yeah um, and then I I had a job and so I lived at home and sure had some money and live large for a year <laughs> <laughs> As much as you can on a blockbuster. Well, I mean, when you live at home and your parents are still pretty, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, and at that point too, like I never drank, um, all my, all my substance abuse issues came later. And so (laughs) it was really like, you know, I had some decent money in my pocket and I was working at least 40 hours a week. So, you know, um, it was certainly enough money to live a tiny baller life. <laughs> How is your health now? Much better. Very, very good. Um, I would say kind of post 30 is when things really started getting balanced for me. Mm. Uh, when I was 30, I went to rehab. and For um, addiction? Yeah. So what were you addicted to? I was addicted to marijuana, which shocks people. Because uh, they're like, you can't get addicted to marijuana. And I'm like, fun fact, you can. <laughs> They don't sure tell anyone. Can. Sure you can. Anything, um, I guess you could. I mean, anything you can get addicted to. But yeah, what people don't know is that basically it's estimated that 30% of regular pot smokers have mm-hmm. what is called problematic use. 
where it is affecting their life in some way mm. and 10% um, are full-blown addicted. And so I was, um, originally it had started as kind of a self-medicating situation where I, when I started smoking weed, um, I wasn't sad. I didn't hurt all the time. I wasn't as scared of life. Mm. I wasn't. And so I'm, I was going to therapy while this was happening. Um, but I also, I had a nervous breakdown when I was 23 and I couldn't work. I had to move back in with my parents. Um, and I didn't, I had no hope that I was ever going to get better. And so it was just very painful. And then I found that um, I went to visit some friends in Montreal that were still going to school there. And they had always been potheads and I'd always been like, I'm good. Um, and then I was like, you know what, I'll try it. And then I was like, well, this is magical and wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and then it just slowly became more and more prevalent in my life because mm -hmm. I didn't have to hurt. Um, so fast forward seven years later, we had gone past the point where it was helping to the point where I was smoking just to feel normal. Cause I, the second I woke up in the morning, I felt like shit, mm -hmm. uh, because I didn't eat really. Um, during the day I would live off weed and cigarettes and coffee. And then, um, I was working at a restaurant. So I sometimes have lunch at the restaurant and then for dinner, oh, this is so, when people are like, I, when I described my life back then, because I was also stealing money from people because I didn't have enough money for rent and weed hmm. and bills, bills, get out of here. And um, so all I would do was go to work. That's the only time I'd ever really leave. I kind of st stopped doing stand up. I was barely auditioning for anything. Um, I'd really only go to work and be at home and be high. And I would smoke before I went to work and... Um, and then for dinner, I would just eat like a McCain deep and delicious cake. Um, mm. and cause it was cheap and easy and, and they taste good. Oh God. They're so good. Oh yeah. They're underrated. Do As, they exist anymore? Yes, they do. Oh, they're still a thing. That was the best. Right? My mom used to get them. Chocolate? And I'd on. have half You of put that. them in the freezer. So oh, good. They are really good. Um, so because when you first start smoking weed, you get the munchies. Mm -hmm. But when you smoke all day, every day, you yeah. you just stop, you don't need food anymore. Anytime I was hungry, I was like, oh, I should get up and make something. You know, and I'll just smoke another joint. And then you're like, oh, I'm not hungry anymore. Um, so I was very thin. Yeah. I don't want to brag. I was very <laughs> thin. I looked great. I was a size four. Shut up. <laughs> um, I shouldn't encourage that kind of thinking. But um, yeah, so it got to the point. It was ruining my life. and yeah. And it was where people were starting to not like me anymore and um you know even the rare times they did see me and then my parents figured out that I was putting all my bills on their credit cards and uh. you know I was living this garbage life and I was being a garbage person and but addiction will do that right like mm. it was the most important thing and I didn't know um how to not I didn't know how to not be high anymore and then I recognized, too, that not only had I smoked away all the bad feelings, but I had smoked away all the good ones, too. And so now I'm in this weird limbo where I'm never happy, but I'm never sad, but I also am not doing anything. Hmm. Um, and then I kind of realized, I was like, I have to make a choice either because I still had a lot of dreams and things I wanted to accomplish. Yeah. 
And so I was like, well, either I give those up and I kind of dedicate my life to weed for the rest of my life mm. and, and try to find a way to make it work because at this point uh, I was in, in a lot of debt and I had collections coming after me and I had people cutting me off left and right. And that um, was basically fucked. Uh, so I had to either find a way to make that work or I had to find a way to quit mm -hmm. and um, actually try at life. And uh, I just realized that like I tried to quit or cut down. That's the, the best thing. Yeah. The, the addicts who pretend that I'm going to just do it on the weekends. Sure. Um, oh, no, the weekend lasted seven days again. <laughs> Uh, it's the summer holidays. Yeah, it just for a while I was like, "Okay, I'm just gonna make a list of the joints that I have to have mm. every day to survive," and that was ten. Wow. Um, and which was a significant cut down. Jeez. From the yeah, I'm not joking. I really dedicated my life. Um, but and then that but the ten it I never stuck to ten. It was too hard. Mm. Um, and that was when I just realized, like, I, I kept thinking I need to go somewhere where I just can't get at it for a while. And then I was like, oh, I think that's called rehab. So you went to, you checked yeah. yourself in. Yes. Well, I started with you, the place I went, you start with, um, there, an information night that you go to and then you start in their outpatient program and then they kind mm. of, they kind of filter you. There's a day program as well as a resident program. Okay. Um, and because the place I went was covered by OHIP, like Ontario Insurance, um, there was a waiting list. So it took about three months. Um, and that was, I was I was on the wait list, like call me last minute. So the only reason it only took three months is because someone dropped out at the last minute yeah. and I went. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I went, I had to go to the residence program because I was like, if I go to the day program and then I go home at night, I'm just going to stop at my dealer on the way home. And find weed. Like I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand how people do the day program. It's dumb. Wow. So how did you then, so you have to do two things, right? You had to, you had to quit the addiction mm -hmm. and then you also had to figure out how to fix your anxiety and depression in another way. Well, to be honest with you at that point, because I'd been with my therapist for a long time. Okay. From 20 to 25, we spent a lot of time cycling through drugs to try and find the right combo. Okay. And then we found a really good combination that worked for me. Yeah. And, and we kept working on things. She was still in Ottawa, but in, when I came to Toronto, we would talk on the phone. I would see her when I went home. And so in a way, a lot of these things had gotten better. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had kind of come to a place where I knew how to deal with everything except for the addiction. Okay. And so I felt very strong in other ways. Um, yeah. I, I felt like this was now the thing that was holding me back. Whereas mm -hmm. in the beginning, it had kind of helped me survive. Mm -hmm. um, now it was the thing ruining me. It kind of had come that full circle. Um, so once I got off of that, actually, it, it, it was even became easier to sort of stabilize. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And and today, do you still need to take medication? Yes. To keep things in check? Okay. So I still, um, and I'm very pro whatever works for you. A lot of people sure. have bad experiences on medication and they are very against it. And I understand that. And yeah. a lot of people, um, it doesn't work. But I take, I'm on fairly low doses. Mm -hmm. I, I take two drugs. And one, I take a quarter of a pill. Like it's barely mm -hmm. a thing. Um 
but I went off it for a while and about a month later, my anxiety started spiking. Mm. And so it's one of those things where, look, I'm not saying I'm going to be on them forever. Um, it's been a really long time now. And, and you know, so we've kind of lowered the dose a bit, but um, whenever I lower it too much mm-hmm. um these you things spike yeah. yeah and so and you know you're aware of that it seems like you're aware and you know now i'm so hyper aware of just sort of tracking right mm-hmm. and where am i at and how long if i'm low because it's normal to have some low times if i'm low how many days has it been and is this mm. one of those normal lulls or is this and so because you get good at it over time. You get good at man. If you pay attention and you're working on these things, you get good at managing. Okay. And 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 knowing. In mm-hmm. the beginning, people would say, well, what are your triggers? And I was like, I don't know. How are you supposed to know? <laughs> I'm fine and then I'm sad. Um, whereas now, I'm like, oh, well, let me tell you. I have got a list. Mm. And so it's much easier for me to pinpoint well, this person said this, and it made me think of this, and then this person did this, and then I went into a brain spiral. You know what I mean? Um, and But also now my toolbox is really full. So that's all the little things that you collect. And I went to this great super airy-fairy rehab yeah, where they kind of like threw everything at you, and they're like, we don't know what's going to work for you. Try all of it. Yeah. And so now I know what works for me mm-hmm. and I know when I need to go back to those things and I know, okay, you know what? It's been a few days. I got to meditate more. I got to go to bed early. I got to, you know, maybe I should hit the gym. Maybe I, these things that help me calm down and find my center. You know what I mean? Sounds like things are good. Things are amazing. Yeah. This is what That's I keep awesome. telling people right now, Kareem. Okay. I keep saying, tell me, tell me. I cannot stop winning. That is awesome. I'm a winner. I can't stop winning. And even when you think I'm losing, you're winning. I'm going to turn it around into a win. Yeah. So do you, do you have mixed feelings about October this year? The only reason I do is I'm so jealous. Kids today don't know how good they have it. <laughs> oh my God. But you can just walk into a store and order weed. You don't have to find some dumb, weird guy to <laughs> meet you at the park and you can get the best weed in the world. I, I hate it. So you don't um, touch it anymore, I guess, right? That's no. part of addiction, right? I love it too much. Mm. This is what I always say. So when I'm 80, I'm definitely going back to drugs. Um, and I'm probably going to do hard drugs Wait, too. 80, 80 is the new 60, they say. So Yeah, whatever. Maybe um, you know what? I'm going to have great times. Uh, <laughs> and I'm probably going to do heroin. Um, cause I feel like opiates are goals. the you best, goals. right? Yeah, I'll probably, like, let's, I'm not going to, I mean, I'll, I'll do uh, oxys because heroin is more socially acceptable in pill form. And I'm definitely going to go back to weed. But then I also made up a new rule mm-hmm. where, or when I have $10 million, then I can start smoking weed again, whichever comes first. Because $10 million will be enough for me to last my whole life. There you go. Um. So, yeah. Uh, so, no. I feel like if <laughs> I, I feel like if I took a, like someone was smoking a joint outside right now and I took a toke, I'd be like, you know what? I'll just pick up a quarter later. I'll just get a quarter. Everything will be fine. Yeah. I'll only do it on weekends. Only on weekends. And then the next thing you know, I'm like, oh no, I didn't go to work. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's a slippery slope. Interesting. When when did acting turn into comedy or stand up? I guess. When I was 21, mm-hmm. um, my brother had already been in comedy for three years Yeah. and he was always like, you have to do it. You're the funniest person I know. And I would be like, I'm not funny that way. Uh, and he was like, there's only one kind of funny. 
Um, I'm making him sound very aggressive right now. I, I used to tell people that he forced me to do it and then he yeah. got upset. And he's like, no, I didn't. And I'm like, well, you bugged me for like three years. And he's like, I encouraged you. Okay, fine. Um, and I finally tried it. Oh mm-hmm. my God, it was so scary. I had to get his girlfriend at the time had to hold my hand and like walk me to the stage. She was also a comic. Um, and my first set went okay. Did you prep like a script? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, my best friend and I sat at the Elgin Street Diner and -hmm. worked on it. And then uh, my first set went okay. And that's the death knell. You want to bomb your first set and never come back. That's what you should want to have happen. Just quit (laughs) and never go back. (laughs) Quit while you're ahead. But my first set went okay. And people laughed a bit. And then Mm. it was like, that's a drug. That's another drug. And then you're like, I'm stuck. And the thing is with stand-up is it's so immediate. You don't need, with acting, you need other people. You need someone to either cast you or do a scene with you or, you know, there you have to find an audience. You have to withstand up, especially like in Toronto, any mm-hmm. night of the week, you can walk into any number of shows. You can do it by yourself. You write everything. You're the only person up there. And so you can do it all the time. Hmm. And so it's so much more accessible. And honestly, once you make people laugh and strangers and what a messed up thing to want to do. But once you start doing it, nothing feels better. And you, sorry, finish. Oh, I was just going to say, then you're locked in. Were you a joke person or were you a story? Oh, story person. Story. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The people who write like one-liners, yeah. like set up punch, I'm in awe of that. I, the last, so I haven't done stand-up in almost two years, but in the end, when I would talk to like younger comics about writing jokes, I'd be like, I don't even know how you write a joke. Hmm. I don't. I say stuff weird and I make a face and it seems to work. Do you remember your first, like your first joke or your first story that you told on stage? I don't fully remember. I remember talking about, uh, I was still a virgin. So I told stories about, I had this joke about how like it's, um, it's a gift I keep trying to give away, but it keeps getting returned unopened and um and i told a story of i had gone on this date with a guy who was in the army and he was super weird and a lot of weird stuff happened so i told that story um that's all i really remember hmm. my brother has it on tape which is, is it a on youtube no god no it's never going on youtube <laughs> it's never but he also found a tape we were both on the same show one night and this was like years ago and he showed me some of my set it was so bad and i was bombing and i was like don't turn it off and he was like he was facetiming me from california with it on his tv <laughs> making me watch it and he because he had just watched a bunch of his and he's like no i hate myself now you have to hate yourself <laughs> and i was like why why but uh that's part of it. Why? So I don't want to make light of this. Yeah. The, the the things that you've personally had to battle. Sure. But what, to me, what is it with comedians and depression? So I think the thing is, is that comedy becomes a coping mechanism. Okay. And that's where it comes from. Because for me, once I started in comedy and you start looking for the funny in almost everything. Mm. Then I remember this guy dumped me and I was really upset about it. And then I thought of a joke about him that I could tell on stage and it made me laugh. And all of a, like for a second I felt better and I was like, oh my God, that was great. And so I think there's this desire to, um, first of all, I think there is something to the fact that 
when you're sad, you're creative. Sometimes mm. I think everyone has those moments because I think that's the moment where you get very dramatic, right? Yeah. But I think also it really is about you know, and that's why comics, whenever something happens and and comics start making jokes and they go, "Is it too soon? Too soon, guys? Too mm-hmm. soon?" The reason is because the second we start feeling that sad or helpless or whatever, we immediately go, where's the joke? There's a joke here somewhere. Yeah. And I'm going to find it. Um, And then unfortunately, sometimes you get kicked off Twitter and fired and stuff like that. I'm speaking of like Gilbert Gottfried with his weird joke about the tsunami. Um, And sometimes you deserve it. And sometimes Mm. you it's but it's part of the crutch. It's how you cope with the world because the world's a nightmare. All right. I thought maybe I was just seeing things that weren't there but it's oh no i know comics that would tell you you're seeing things that work there and then i go no they're all crazy yeah we're all crazy (laughs) and there must be something inside you that wants to go on stage and perform knowing that 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 there's a chance that people are going to boo you or not pay attention to you think about how messed up it is Mm -hmm. most people don't even want to do public speaking period making people laugh and a group of people when laughter is subjective and then to go i'm gonna go up on stage all the time and do it's a weird masochistic why would you ever do that yeah (laughs) and so yeah i think there's something wrong with all of us Mm. and i do think there is I've argued with this guy that I've known for 20 years about it because he's like, that's not true. And I'm like, it is true. We're drawn to it because there's something wrong there's with something us. There's something wrong. I want to do just one open mic one day. Sure. Just do it. Yeah. Not that I think I'm funny. I just want to be able to conquer that. It's, you know what? It's a terrifying experience. I can and imagine. So, um, and I also don't like writing things though. Mm, yeah. Right? Like, like I just started writing notes for these podcasts right i used to do research and stuff and then i started writing and it's it's so hard i I, like there's no script here yeah at all you know it's just like points you know oh amira sent me there your bio so let me just draw out some stuff there because how do you know where the conversation is gonna go yeah how did you know i was gonna come in here and be like okay also i went to rehab also one time (laughs) when i was sad like you can't know that no yeah and so because i feel the same way i'll have a jumping off point for interviews but Mm -hmm. i often i'm like when when sometimes publicists will be like can you submit questions in advance and i'm like no i have no clue exactly yeah i'm so glad he doesn't ask me that no because i I have no clue what i'm gonna talk i can submit you one question in advance (laughs) and then it depends on the answer and then it depends yeah do you have any any stand-ups or comics that um, inspired you or that you inspired to be be like? Um, well, back in the day, I always tell people this, and this is a hard one, and this was... But I feel like it's relevant. Um, so when I was a kid, the two people that inspired me the most... Uh, one was Eddie Murphy. I saw a babysitter let me watch Eddie Murphy Delirious when I was like seven. Mm. Um, and you can't watch it anymore. Like it's so 80s and homophobic. And But uh, at the time, I was like, Eddie Murphy's the funniest person who ever lived. We also had a tape of Bill Cosby himself. And that mm. show, and Bill Cosby is a real storyteller. And yes. That show is just him and it, he, you know, sits on the stool half the time and he's just telling stories about his family. And that was the first time I, I understood that that was a job. Right. Like I saw it before I saw Delirious. And um, so for a long time when people were like, who made you want to be a comedian? It's Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. And it's still true. It's just that Bill Cosby turned out to be a 
monstrous sexual predator. And so that's a huge downer mm. and die in a fire, Bill Cosby. So let me, let me ask you this. Um, do you, can you separate? No, you can't, eh? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm assuming, exact- I'm assuming yes. you're going to say the art from the artist. Yeah. No, I can't. And if people can, I, that's everyone. Why can't you, why can't you do that? Every time I see him, I think about those women. Every time, hmm. and and I, but but it's not even just that; it's the betrayal. It is the lies. It is every time he went on a talk show and moralized to people. Every time I hear about, he went to younger comedians and told them not to swear because it's you know. And he always held himself up as I'm a proper person. You should do what I say because I know better than you, and I'm better. I'm a better person than you. Hmm. And and the way he moralized to young black America Mm. pull up your pants excuse me you drugged and raped women and you had the gall to then go on Ellen the next day and tell people to pull up their pants like get over yourself um and and the fact that you know what the Cosby show was so formative for me as a kid I wanted to be Denise I wanted to, Mm. I wanted that family. I loved that family. We all felt like he was America's dad, right? Like, we all were like, that's the perfect, he's the perfect guy. That's the perfect family. And he was lying to us the whole time. And so it's, it's like, I can't look at him knowing what a hypocritical piece of garbage he is. I can't hear his jokes. I don't want him to make me laugh. Um, because he is such a lying piece of garbage. I don't mind flawed people. Um, but you got to own your shit. Mm. And that guy pretended to be the best of us and was actually the worst and was using that as a cover to get, I'm going to mentor you young women. I'm going to help you in your career. Mm. That to me is unforgivable. It's the same thing with R. Kelly. I can't listen to R. Kelly songs anymore. That guy hangs out outside high schools to try and pick up teenage girls. That guy is a nightmare. I can't separate. Um, Roma Polanski. I'm not watching your movies, guy. Woody Allen. You, Woody Allen, I've never been a big fan of anyway. So um, I think maybe, weirdly, the one movie of his that I liked was Manhattan Murder Mystery, which no one <laughs> no one liked but me. Um, but like anything I saw, Annie Hall, I think it's gross. Hannah and Her Sisters is gross. I never understood why Woody Allen is always the protagonist when he's weird and gross. And all these women are like, I love you. And I was like, what's <laughs> happening? Um, so it, you know what? It's not difficult for me to go. Mm. Yeah. That guy's a garbage fire. I don't, I, I haven't, I, I don't remember the last Woody Allen. I, I think probably the last Woody Allen movie I saw was celebrity because Leonardo DiCaprio was in it. Mm. And I was young then and thought he was perfect. I remember, I don't know if you ever remember this, but, uh, chum FM used to have like on Sunday nights, they'd have a comedy hour. Or oh, maybe it was two hours, like late at night on Sunday nights. And that's when I first found or discovered Woody Allen okay. stand-up. And I it was the funniest thing. Um, I had two of Bill Cosby's albums. Mm. Some of the funniest storytelling. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's like I don't know what to do. Like I don't know what to do. You know what? It's very hard. And I know people who can separate. Mm. And I don't judge that. 
I because I think, look, we we can all only process our own things. Right. And there's way too much judging people and burning people to the ground for being associated with people or so. It's tricky. You can only go with your gut. Mm -hmm. And if you know what, if you're listening to Bill Cosby and you're like, "Eh, it's still funny, you know, then that's okay. Um, I'm someone who I'm very emotional and I'm very, um, I'm, I'm a real angry person (laughs) on some level. And so there are some things where I just, and as a woman, I think it's hard to, right? Because most of these dill holes do bad things to women. And so I think there's a level of, um, I can't, I, I have a, a very hard time with it and I have a very hard time with, you know what? With Polanski, if that guy, the the thing that gets me a lot of time is this refusal to admit you did anything wrong. And with that guy, him being like, haven't I been exiled from America long enough? Yeah. No, buddy, you still have to go to jail. You didn't go to jail. You were guilty. You said guilty. And then you fled the country before you were incarcerated. And the fact that he thinks he should get a pass because he's like, oh, I've been forced to live in Sweden this whole time. He's still making fucking <laughs> movies. He's gotten Academy Awards in that time. But you feel like you've served enough punishment? Hmm. Dude, you raped a kid. Get out of town. Yeah. Um, and so it's this non-ownership. And, hmm. and not that I'm saying I, I don't know that I could ever forgive raping a kid. But at the same time, the fact that he seems to think that he's like, everyone should forgive time. me. Get out of town. Yeah. You haven't. You didn't serve a day, sir. So it's that kind of, um, it, it's the entitlement that these guys sometimes have that makes me go, oh, I can never watch anything you do now. Hmm. Because Bill Cosby felt entitled to those women. Louis C.K. Louis C.K. is a tough one. and why is, why is that tough? Is it tough because he always talked about masturbation and then you found out, oh shit. Uh, that's well, actually, that's I heard those rumors long before they came out. Ah. I already had accepted a a couple years before I was Mm. like, Oh, he definitely did that. And I've never been the biggest fan. Like he, I, there was a period where I really, really liked him. And then I kind of feel like Netflix, um, they were putting out a new hour every year when you have more and more projects on the go is impossible. And so he had already, I'd already been like, I'm over it. Um, however, do I think that he should never come back? I don't I don't necessarily think that. I think that he showed up too quickly and and he didn't he's not acknowledging it. Hmm. So right now he's dead to me. But as it, it, you know what, if he comes back and shows us who he's been talking to or what he's been doing in order to learn from this or how's he been doing, I don't rule out forgiving him sure right um and i do think there is a difference between exposing yourself to someone and raping someone um i think they're both garbage i think he's a piece of shit Mm -hmm. but i think what he did there can be redemption sure um he hasn't found it yet and it's too soon and the fact that he just walked out on stage and did not address it makes me nuts it's that entitlement again Mm. he's like i feel like i've been gone long enough you guys should forgive me and i shouldn't have to address it yeah how dare you sir Mm. why am i calling these guys sir i don't know (laughs) being very formal with them let's let's get back to you okay me um howl and roars yes 
tell me more like tell me the why like why 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 now so i started programming and hosting a show on canada laughs which mm-hmm. is sirius xm channel 168 um called allison doors broadcast and it's celebrating women in comedy mm-hmm. and I immediately realized that, especially in Canada, there was not enough material from women. And even women that I knew were headliners Mm -hmm. and that should have albums out. And I was like, why don't I have access to anything by these people? And originally, the focus was going to be on Canadian comics. And I had to throw that out right away because I was like, then I have four episodes. Mm. Um, And even in the States... And obviously there's more men than women in comedy, but it's not even proportional. So that made me nuts for a while. I also thought about, you know, a few years ago I put out an album and I hated the whole experience. And I kind of, I took a deal I shouldn't have taken Mm. and it was not the best deal. And I realized that in the new year that there was some messed up stuff about it. And I kind of thought, I don't want this to happen to anybody else. And so originally it started so small and it wasn't going to be a label and it was just going to be, I'm going to help because now after all my, I spent 17 years in comedy um, and then comedy overlapped with radio a bit, but I've spent the last five years in radio. I've learned a lot about production. I've met a lot of people. I know a lot of people that own indie music labels. I know. I suddenly realized that I knew all the people in place and I could, I, my plan originally was kind of on the DL I'm going to help a bunch of women put out albums Mm -hmm. and I'll take a small cut and we'll just kind of do it. And then it suddenly snowballed because I realized that to really do it right and to really make an impact, I had to do a label and I had to Mm -hmm. do it big and I had to do it in a way that got more recognition because me just kind of helping women slide these albums out is not going to change enough, except for it's going to get them recording, which is great. Sure. But I realized that for not a ridiculous amount more effort on my part, it was going to take more money, but money's money. Um, but for just a little bit more time and effort, we could do it up in a way that, that might make a bigger impact. And so it very quickly snowballed um, because it was just in the new year of this year that this idea first oh, wow. hatched. Hmm. And now here we are launching and I've got shows every month until into 2019 and i've got people coming out of the woodwork like nobody's business nice yeah tell me what's happening september 19th september 19th is our official launch Mm -hmm. and our first live album recording um i have since signed someone who is recording in halifax um but it will be released after this one so kate davis is one of those headliners i was mentioning okay she has been uh in the industry for over 25 years she is hilarious she is consistent Mm -hmm. Um, she's always on the debaters, touring all over the country. She's also a very coveted speaker and never put out an album. Hmm. And she was the first person I went to and I've known her for a long time. We're very close friends, but I, I said, I, I would like you to meet me for lunch. I would like to pitch you on why you should let me put out an album for you. Mm -hmm. And she was the first person to get on board Nice. and was, yeah, very excited. And so her live album recording um is going to be september 19th at the bad dog theater here in toronto and then afterwards we're going to have a champagne reception and you know just celebrate the launch of howl and roar 
That is awesome. I'm really excited. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I could, I don't know if you noticed, I could talk for days. I would love to have you talk for days. That'd be amazing. Um, Hopefully we get you back in. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. I don't want to bray. We've barely scratched (laughs) the surface of my stories. I know. I've only gone through like half my notes. Wonderful. But tell me, if people want to find out more about you, about um, Howl and Roar, where can they go? So Howl and Roar on all socials is at Howl underscore Roar. And um, you can also go to HowlandRoarRecords.com. We have a beautiful website. And then for me on Instagram, I'm Allison.Door. On Twitter, I'm Allison.Door. You can find me. I'm all those places. And you everywhere. And you can find me on SiriusXM, Channel 167, Monday to Friday from 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern, hosting The Breakdown. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, again, my name is Kareem Kanji. You can check me out everywhere on Twitter, at Kareem Kanji. Uh, this show finally has a Twitter handle, at welcome underscore podcast. Uh, please subscribe on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, you can find all the details and links at kareemkanji.com slash subscribe um we are happy and excited to be recording here at girth radio um go check out a bunch of shows at girthradio.com um there's been a lot of funny people sammy union has talked to uh, nick cannon as well as i'm gonna butcher this guy's last name dave mergy mirage mirage i saw one of his stand-up that guy's a funny guy he's wonderful he's really he's good. lovely he's gonna be on an episode of my podcast awesome. in a few weeks there you go cross promotion and uh sean um, uh, recently had Ed the Sock here in studio and uh, if you want to hear some more stuff by me um, you can go check out the recent episodes with uh, Biff Naked as well as uh, Megan Hutchings uh, TV star of In Contempt Allison again thank you so much thank you can I just tell people to also check out my podcast Digging In yes Digging In with Allison Dora thank you